But today I want to direct your attention to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can follow along as usual from the sermon outline on page 8, if you wish. Those are the points laid out there. But let's give our undivided attention to God's most holy and infallible word found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let "Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of... Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul in verse 1, and he repeats this in verse 16, you may want to notice that, as though bookending that section, we'll be looking only at the first 12 verses here, but in those two places in verse 1 and verse 16, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says in the English Standard Version, we do not lose heart. And the reason he says this is because we often are tempted to lose heart, to be discouraged. There is much in this life, in this mortal coil, as we call it, that is discouraging. Much in the Christian life that's uniquely discouraging much in the Christian ministry that's uniquely discouraging. We're discouraged by our own faults. We are discouraged by the indifference of many to the gospel. We're discouraged by the apparent 
massive success of evil in the world. We're discouraged by the lovelessness and the listlessness and the lifelessness among many Christians. With Christians acting more and more like pagans. And this lack of difference between professing Christians and the world is powerfully reflected in another discouraging feature. Indifference to the plight of the lost. This so prevalent among professing believers. By the way, many of these same concerns and discouragements were background to Paul's two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, to the Christians in Corinth. So Paul says here, we do not lose heart, and he's going to explain why. But we need to remember an important piece of the background. In chapter 1, verse 8 of this same letter, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So he says here we don't lose heart, but he also confessed earlier to losing heart. Now, you should be encouraged by that, you discouraged saints. The Apostle Paul himself said simultaneously, I was so discouraged I despaired of life. And then he says here, but we don't lose heart. What do you do with that? Well, in this passage, he gives us some of the reasons that as low as he was, scraping the bottom, he ultimately did not lose heart, and neither should we. The four points of the outline are this. We do not lose heart because the compassion that calls us as containers of clay. You notice the reference there to verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. But secondly, we do not lose heart because of the character that should mark containers of clay. Thirdly, because of the contrasting response to the ministry of containers of clay, he injects an element of realism, but he also injects an element of hopefulness. And then number four, We do not lose heart because of the consequence of ministry through containers of clay. The first point, we don't lose heart because of the compassion of God that calls us as containers of clay. Notice that gospel ministry is a result of receiving gospel mercy. Therefore, having this ministry By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
This is his first and his main point, and the others spill from it. Just as our salvation is a miracle of God, so a miracle of God's grace is our service. Notice we, he says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God included in the ministry, the service was the salvation. The service is but the outgrowth of the salvation, and both are completely, from beginning to end, God's mercy. So the ones who have this ministry of them, of have this gospel ministry of mercy are those who've first been recipients of mercy. Who are the recipients of mercy? The guilty. (laughs) The ones who need mercy. The ones who in themselves are condemned. The ones who in themselves are hopeless and helpless. Some of you may remember the famous words in chapter 1 of this second Corinthian letter, where the Apostle Paul says that the only people who can give comfort to others are those who've first received God's comfort for themselves. We can't resource others when we haven't received ourselves. It's a It's a principle of life, and in the spiritual realm as in every realm, we can only give what we have first received. And notice that word give. In other words, we've been gifted. If we try to give what we've earned or deserved or merited or achieved, it doesn't work. We have to minister out of our weakness, our frailty our brokenness, our need. Paul expresses this when he reminds Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I used to scoff at the name of Christ. I hunted down his people, harming them in every way I could. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how kind and gracious the Lord was. He filled me completely with faith and the love of Christ. This is a true saying, and everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. And I was the worst of them all. But that is why God had mercy on me, so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. So one of our problems, for those of us who have been Christians for a while, is we tend to lose our sense of awareness, our pristine awareness of our sinnerhood. Awareness of our sin goes theoretical. It's a, it's a plank of our orthodoxy that we're sinners, but it's not a poignantly felt, perceived, humbling, heartbreaking reality. 
And by the way, when that happens, it's impossible to repent. And so the problem of unrepentant and unrepenting sinners is a plague upon professing Christendom today. Sin is a problem I used to have. I mean, we don't really consciously say that, but we feel that as the prevailing mood. I used to have that, but we've advanced beyond it now, and there's this lack of ongoing, powerful sense of being a mercy recipient now, today, in this moment. By the way, one of the effects of this is that we lose our sense of identification with, our sense of solidarity with other sinners. That goes theoretical rather than practical. We're not really any longer fellow beggars sharing with other spiritual beggars where to find spiritual bread. And we're much more contemptuous than we are compassionate. By the way, other sinners pick up on this. Even when we're unconscious of it, and our witness, our testimony then feels inauthentic, plastic, insincere. So the bearers of mercy, that's what ministry is, is to be mercy bearers. The bearers of mercy must be ongoingly recipients of mercy themselves. It is our woundedness, our woundedness without, our woundedness within. This is the very context of our usefulness. It's the very things that we try to escape, to dismiss, to excuse, to ignore, to defend. These are the very things that are the avenues of our usefulness. That we are fellow mercy needers. Ironically, it's this process of continually and consciously receiving mercy that also has the effect of purging our lives in many ways. And that's why he mentions what he does in verse 2. Where you notice he says, but we've renounced the disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's only through being broken, needy, weak, mercy recipients that we have any hope for honesty, authenticity, integrity, and credibility. When we're not consciously receiving mercy, then we're going to gravitate quickly toward manipulative approaches to life and ministry. Because we're more impressed with our contribution than God's clemency. We're self-deceived, and therefore we become deceivers. 
We're way too dependent on what we can do to make things happen. If we're not consciously receiving mercy, need is not deeply felt. So we can't truly receive mercy without renouncing other dependencies. I want you to notice two R words in verse 2. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse. Notice there is this strong emotional content to this. It's receiving mercy that energizes this kind of renouncing of any and every other dependency, reliance, hope, and help. So receiving mercy necessitates abandoning hope in other things, especially in ourselves. You see, when we've received mercy from God, then we don't need other ego-propping supports and encouragements. We don't need to make an impression. We don't need to be a splash. We don't need to curry favor. We don't need to garner a following. We don't need to have to be high profile anymore. So Paul says, because of this mercy, (laughs) only because of this mercy, we don't lose heart. Every other reason in life, with all of its many and varied trials and disappointments and disillusionments and difficulties would cause us to sag and collapse under the strain. Ah, but when we're receiving mercy. Yes, we still feel those things. Yes, we still feel those things, but we're buoyed up. We lose heart when we try to find joy and meaning in things other than the absolutely undeserved and undeservable mercy of Christ that he keeps showering on us all of our days. There was a very discouraged Methodist minister who wrote the great 19th century and early 20th century Scottish Presbyterian preacher Alexander White. W-H-Y-T-E. I encourage you to find some of his writings. Powerful. So this discouraged minister asked um, Alexander White's counsel about whether or not he should leave the ministry. He was so discouraged. And in part, White wrote him back, even though he had some tender parts leading up to this, He launched this zinger exhortation. Never think of giving up preaching, he said. The angels around the throne envy you your great work. By the way, that was not just for preachers. (laughs) Who in here has received mercy? then you are called to the mercy ministry. You are 
proclaimers of and practitioners of mercy. Angels envy us of our profound privilege. By the way, I guess you catch from that that I may be retiring, but I ain't done preaching. (laughs) If Billy Graham could go out and preach to the pine stumps, I guess I can find a few. (laughs) You catch the point. And by the way, all of this raises the question of ministry failure, doesn't it? A perception of failure, a discouragement that comes from it doesn't seem like what we're doing is amounting to anything. Isn't that somewhat in the background here? And the Apostle Paul is going to address this in verses 3 through 6. Now, by the way, some background. It's almost as though there were Corinthians standing on the sidelines saying, Paul, you speak so glowingly about this simple, unembellished, unslick ministry and message, but you're not having much of an impact. And besides that, if your unfancy ministry and message is so superior, where are the results all these other people that you claim are false? And phonies are having results. Did you know that the three fastest growing uh, religious entities on planet Earth today are all cults? I mean, that is sobering, but it's true. And that's why the the third point is the contrasting response to the ministry of containers of clay. Notice the way he describes that again, beginning with verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those, what? It's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice the contrast between those who have received the light from those who have spurned the light. The gospel, you see, is clear, but the hearts of many are not clear, the apostle is saying. The gospel is veiled to some people because it is veiled in some people. The lack of results, at least in large part, is attributable to the problem in the hearers, not the lack of power of the message. And by the way, Paul knew by personal experience, did he not, what it meant to be blinded by unbelief, by uh, to be blinded by, as he says in verse 4 there, the God of this world. But he also knew what it was like for the mind to be illumined by a supernatural invasion of divine light into the soul. As he's on the road of, to Damascus, blind as a bat spiritually, 
seeking to find and murder more Christians. And Jesus comes, blinding light, boom, bang, he drops to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And his dark soul was absolutely suffused with a holy light. Blind unbelief, banished. And this became the great theme of Paul's writings. To understand and embrace the gospel is a miracle. It's a supernatural thing. No one can say and obviously mean, as he says in chapter 12, verse 3 of this letter, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So ministry is not only a function of the mercy received, it's a function of miracles wrought within us. The only way that a person can become a Christian is God performs a sovereign, unassisted, uninvited act of power similar to when he created light. That's his illusion in verse 6. Look at that again. In verse 6, he talks about just as God said, let there be light, and there was light. So he speaks light and life into a dead soul. That's why I loved uh, Nate Arnold's line last week, God micromanages our salvation. Wasn't that good? (laughs) I told him afterwards, I'm going to steal that one, buddy. Now, as Reformed people, we get a bad rap sometimes because we're kind of anti-supernatural with regard to belief in uh, belief in, we have suspicions about the continuance of the so-called supernatural sign gifts like speaking in tongues and words of prophecy and other such things as that. But let me tell you something. There is no view ever in the history of Christendom that has a greater acknowledgement of the supernatural, miraculous power of God in the salvation of souls than the Presbyterian and Reformed faith. We have a lot of weaknesses and defects that we need to own. But we're the industry leaders on that one. <laughs> I never forget a young Catholic man, young attorney. He visited uh, our church in Maryland where we were in 15, for 15 years. And uh, he had been listening to our local radio uh, program. And he had come to visit our church, and he began to beg his wife to come with him. And uh, he kept she kept stiff-arming him about that. In fact, she began to resent his appeals. But one Sunday, he was out of town on a business trip, and so she said, I'll show him. I'll go to that Protestant church and get him off my back. So she did. She came alone. She sat way up in the back. We had a gymnatorium, so it had bleachers. So she sat way up in the nosebleed section, we call it, way up in the back. And uh, <laughs> in the middle of the service, 
I, I didn't really know this until some years later, but I was saying something kind of like I've said here before. If you're here for the first time and you're wondering what this church is about, let me just cut it to the chase for you. This is a sinner's club. If you're a sinner, you're going to fit right in really well. <laughs> something to that effect. And she, and I said, you know, in order to get a savior, you have to be a sinner. Now, all her life, as a good little religious Catholic girl, she was trying with Christianly religious ways to figure out how to compensate for being a sinner, to make up for it to apple polish God, to get God on her side, to make up for all the bad that she had done. And she thought that was what God wanted her to do. Well, in that moment, the Spirit of God fell upon her. And her dark mind was illumined with the light of the gospel. Wait a minute. I'm free just to come as a broken, needy sinner bringing nothing but my brokenness and my need. She told me later that she was white-knuckling her chair to keep from jumping up and running down to the front. Now, where in the world did a nice little Catholic woman get the idea that she needed to run down to the front? She didn't have an explanation for that. And she didn't have an explanation for the supernatural light that flooded her heart. And neither do you when you belong to Jesus. Neither do I. This kind of illumination is supernatural. And this is why Paul says, look, we preach Christ because he's the only one who can produce anything worthwhile in anybody. By the way, what things do we preach other than Christ? Hmm. Go ask the average non-Christian in Mount Pleasant. Uh, what are those people down at Eastbridge? What are they all about? Oh, they're about being the moral police. Yeah, a bunch of right-wing political people. Look, I don't want to discuss politics either way, but let me just say something. When that's our reputation on the street, something is messed up. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have positions on a lot of things and be open about them. But we should be so all about Jesus that anything else we ever say, and even rightly so, about all those other things is utterly eclipsed by how much we're Jesusaholics and we can't stop talking about him. And if we're not there yet, I hope your next chapter, uh, pastor can help you out better on this than I've probably done. So, sometimes we protest the darkness more than we proclaim the light. That's my point. 
And our only role is we're just servants, second half of verse 5. We're just gospel lackeys. And, and just think of it, if Jesus emptied himself and became a bondservant, it's a monstrosity of Christianity when we try to lord it over others in any way, shape, or form. The last point, though, we've got to hurry to it. It's a powerful point. We don't lose heart because of the consequence of ministry through containers of clay, what God does through people like you and me is staggering. I, I think another way to, to translate this is we're cracked pots. Isn't that what he said? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us, verse 7. We carry the gospel from point A to point B. And God wants people to believe not because the messenger is impressive, but because the message is important and imperative. The gospel is poured into us so that it can flow through us. And that doesn't make us the power. In fact, it shows how glorious the gospel is, is that it can be conveyed in such broken, leaky vessels like you and me, defective receptacles. It still retains its power and integrity. You know what? We have great significance because we're creatures created in the image of God. But that image was so marred, scarred, defaced, and mangled by our sin that from now on, our significance is a borrowed significance. Our significance and our security now and forever is anchored, thank God, not to us, but to Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about what he pours into these canisters of clay that we are. I mean, think about it. If God can speak through a donkey to Balaam or through a bush to Moses, as the old boy says, best not get too uppity. When God (laughs) does stuff through us, People should look at us and say, I don't get it. That kind of impact coming through specimens of humanity like that? That's got to be God. They could never pull that off. You know, God seems to take special delight, I think, in choosing and working through the most unlikely people. He told Israel, that's why I chose you. You were the lowest, the last, and the least. That's why you're my choice. (laughs) You see, the whole point is that the lowliness and the weakness and the inadequacy of the vessel is to drive home the point that we are not the point. He's the point. We're not the power. He's the power. So little old dinky Eastbridge. (laughs) Tucked away back here in the woods. You think you're nothing. And actually, you aren't. You're nothing. Canisters of clay that hold 
treasure that can shake the world. Get a hold of that. You know, when Moses and Gideon and Jeremiah and all the others complained to God what a bad choice he was making in using them and calling them, you know, God's answer was not, ah, you know, you're too hard on yourself. You really have a lot to offer. No. God's answer every time was, well, that's why I chose you. (laughs) Because you have nothing to offer. You're just the kind I want. You're obviously weak and inept. So maybe you will stay out of the way. I just love this. Anybody here feel feeble? Anybody here feel ungifted, lacking in ability and wisdom, and you're clumsy and incompetent? You are just what God is looking for. (laughs) The more clay there is in us, the better, because nobody will never, will ever get the idea that it's about us. Maybe Paul had somewhat in the back of his mind here the story of Gideon, you remember, with his 300 men that he routed the massive Midianite hordes, and their main weapon was what? Do you remember? Earthen jars with little torches inside. (laughs) What could an earthen jar do? Well, it can carry light. And in the verses that follow here, you see, Paul pictures the person that God uses is like those earthen jars of Gideon, broken, smashed, a rerun of the cross. Notice the way he puts it in verse 8 and following. The way he describes it, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. There's the cross rerun thing. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. There's the resurrection thing. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There it is. There is cosmic size purpose in our pain, our suffering, our loss, our difficulties, all the things that unhinge us and discourage us. These are the ways, this kind of life over death con quest that works itself out in our lives. As in the case of Christ, death as it were, and all of our struggles and difficulties overplay their hand with us, thinking to destroy us, it truly ushers us into deathless life. The moment a believer dies, that is the moment when he or she is most truly alive. And the moment the believer suffers and sags under the strain of it, is the moment in which Jesus, in his cross, in his resurrection, is most powerfully displayed. You want to look like Jesus? You want to be strong like Jesus? 
chapter 12, verse 10 of this letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul summarizes it in a crisp line. With this I close. When I am weak, then I am strong. Make it so, Lord. Make it so. Cause us to realize that you use us most in our weakness, our woundedness, our, our handicap. When we're sore pressed at every point, we are not hemmed in. When we are at our wit's end, we are never at our hope's end. When we're persecuted by men, we're never abandoned by you. When we are knocked down, we cannot be knocked out. And so we bear on our body the scars that show that we belong to Jesus. We remember those words of old Brennan Manning on the last day. Jesus will look us over not for medals, not for diplomas, not for honors, but for scars. And for this reason, when we're downcast, we take the up look and find that you are sufficient. Hallelujah. You are enough. And only because of that, we can say, it is well. It is so well for my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up.